<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. David Sedaris has built a career on sharing his life through essays. He writes about everything, from the death of family members to his love of picking up garbage. And his performances are both heart-wrenching and hilarious. He knows his work is good. His comedy albums have been nominated for Grammys, and his books have sold more than 10 million copies. And while he likes the attention, it's never been what drives him. I'm just compelled to write. And, and success doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, like if I'd never published a book, I would still write just as much. I'm Rich Filoni, and this is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Before he started writing full-time, Sidaris worked some odd, odd jobs. A gig as Santa's elf at Macy's became an NPR sensation when he read his essay, The Santa Land Diaries, on air in 1992. He's become a radio fixture ever since. Sedaris released his latest book, Calypso, last month, and he's already on the hunt for more stories. Whenever I hear something extraordinary or see something extraordinary, I write it down. You know, it might come in handy. I had lunch with this guy the other day, and he was walking down the street, and he saw a blind man with a seeing-eyed dog, and the dog shit on the sidewalk, right? And so the blind man sensed it. And then he got down on his hands and knees to clean it up, which I didn't even know blind people had to do. Got on his hands and knees, and then he had his his head was in the air, and he was like, he was sniffing around, <laughs> sniffing around for the turds. And my friend told me this at lunch the other day, and I thought, God, that what a remarkable thing to see. I get jealous sometimes when people tell me things <laughs> seen and heard. But you yeah. know, you can't be everywhere all the time, but. I think if I were blind, what I would do is I would say, hello, anybody? And then surely a good – and I would say, clean that up. <laughs> Hand him a bag. Clean that up. Do you have like a, a lens that you turn on and off for taking in things? Like maybe you're judging someone or judging a scenario around you? I'm If I'm awake, I'm judging. <laughs> that's, that's how I do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I came from a big family, so we would all kind of do that. We would think about our day, and we would think, okay, what could I repeat to my mother that would make her laugh? And we all did that because that was the best sound there was, you know, our mother laughing. What were you like as a kid? I mean, you know, when you're gay, you maybe don't have a word for what you are when you're young, you know, because it's not like you are desiring men when you're eight or seven, but you know that there's something different. 
you're different from other boys. You just feel it. You can't. That's nothing you can talk about. I mean, I like that now. When I go on tour, I'll meet a parent who will say, "This is my son, Trevor, and Trevor's gay, and Trevor's like 13." And I think, well, that's great that Trevor can be like that with his parents. It's a whole new generation of people who have the luxury of kind of being themselves younger. So you're saying that as a kid, you felt like you couldn't be yourself. Yeah, I mean, I just felt there was something uh, dark within me that I couldn't, I couldn't let people find out about. Mm. Um, but I think that's pretty common for anybody, you know, my age or older. But I had a, a good family, you know, and I and really got a kick out of my brothers and sisters, and got a kick out of my parents, and considered myself very fortunate. Do you ever have? misgivings about using your family's secrets or just personal moments in your work? I don't think I've ever used their secrets, you know? I mean, everybody has their secrets and things that they don't want people knowing. And my brother, with this, my brother's gone through some changes lately, and uh, my brother used to love to be written about, you know? And then he said he didn't want me mentioning things in this book, so I took it all out. I didn't ask him why. It doesn't really matter why. You know, if he didn't want it in the book, I wasn't going to... I didn't want to be that person. I mean, it was a pain in the ass, to tell you the truth. And it it made me mad. But, you know, people have... Especially if you have a business, you know, maybe you don't want people knowing how you voted or what you believe, you know, because I mean, they'll look at that and they'll just take their business elsewhere. You know? So you became a public figure with the help of Ira Glass before he was even with uh, This American Life, right? Yeah. He had a local show in Chicago called uh, The Wild Room. And your first big hit, uh, it was in 1992, it was that story of you working as uh, one of Santa's elves at Mm-hmm. Macy's, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I had worked at Macy's for two years, actually, and as an elf, and I kept a diary. And so that's all it was, was my diary of the time that I worked as an elf. Because Ira wanted something Christmassy for the Wild Room, and so I thought, well, I have this. On that whole idea of taking that job in the first place, were you working, like, odd jobs as you were trying to kind of fund this hobby that you had of writing and and reading your stories? Well, I just moved to New York, and I don't have any real skills. I mean, I never learned <laughs> to drive a car. I just type with one finger. So I saw an ad, and I thought, okay. And But I realized when I took the job, because then I would tell people, they would say, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm an elf at Macy's. And they would laugh, and I thought, oh, hmm, maybe this isn't such a bad job after all. I mean, people seem to be interested in it. Well, when did you realize that you could make a career out of that? Gosh, I went to art school. And I'd been writing for seven years before I went to art school uh, every day. And I read something in class one day. And people laughed. And I thought, that's it. That's what I want. I don't want to stand in front of people. I don't want to be an actor on stage. I want to read things that I wrote, and I want people to laugh at them. That's what I want. It never really occurred to me that you could make a living out of that. 
I mean, it's the laziest form of show business there is, you know, <laughs> to reading. Every now and then I look up, but I'll take it, you know. So it was always paired together writing with the reading of it, having an audience in front of you? Yeah. When I was in high school or junior high, let's say if you were all assigned to read uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, we would read it out loud in class, and the teacher would call on people to read, and I was always thinking, call me, call me, call me, call me. And it could be a cold reading, too. Like they could say, turn to page 41, read that out loud, and I would just loved it, loved, embraced the opportunity. I know for a lot of people it's the worst nightmare, but I don't know. I always, I always liked it. If you, if you take that paper away, it becomes a whole different thing. You know, I've you had mean? producers who have said, let's turn your reading into a real show and you're going to memorize it and we'll get lighting and we'll get costumes. Like a one-man show type thing? But it's like, no, I don't want to. If I look in the audience and then I say, and then someone was at the door, that's just queer. You know what I mean? Like if I'm in the audience, I don't want somebody looking at me like that. I don't want them looking in the face because then you're going to have to have that look of a, that rictus of appreciation, you know, expression. And every now and then during a show, like the lights won't go all the way down and I can see people in the audience. You know, and I see people asleep and I see <laughs> people sitting there with their arms crossed just not having it. You know, I mean, I see people who are having a good time as well, but I just focus on the ones who would rather be somewhere else. So you want an audience, but you don't necessarily want to be seeing this audience. No, I don't want to see them. But I want them to applaud wildly for me. But <laughs> I don't want to acknowledge the applause. Like, I don't... I worked with somebody on that because I would just kind of walk off stage at the end of a show. And they said, no, that's rude. You need to acknowledge the applause. So now I do this kind of a thing where I look at people for a second. But... I want the applause, but I don't know what to do when I get them. What did you want to accomplish with your stories? Like you were saying, you wanted to hear this laughter from an audience, but when did you decide, to that you wanted to get something maybe a little bit more poignant out of that as well? Well, I think when I started off, I, all I wanted was the laughs, and then you realize, okay, that's not that hard. I can, I can get that. And then you relax a little bit, and then you think... You allow the story to have other moments that aren't necessarily funny. But then I want to get back to the funny bits. I know I'm not going to abandon it. I don't know how people do it, how people get up in front of an audience and read things that aren't funny at all. It's just people coughing. That's all you hear. When did you realize that you could make a job of just writing all day? Well, my first book came out and I still had my job. And my second book came out and I still had my job. And what were your jobs? As I was working for a house cleaning company. I remember my father saying, do you think somebody's just going to call and offer you a job? And I said, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm hoping. And that's what kind of happened. When you were finally able to just dedicate yourself fully to what you wanted to do, was it like it a meant burden? Nothing be- to me. It, it didn't? It meant nothing Why? to me. I don't know. Like to say to somebody, I do nothing but write all day. I mean, you're only good for a couple hours. I mean, what are you going to do with all that other time that's stretching before you? And uh, and so I had a job until I moved to Europe, and then I couldn't get working papers. And so I thought I'd get volunteer work in France, but the government pays people to do everything there. 
So, I mean, I did the only volunteer work job there was in France. I I did, and it lasted for like four days, because I didn't I didn't I didn't know what to do with myself all day. It's sort of like being retired. I know I'll fill four hours of my day with writing, but what am I going to fill the rest of it with? And when I lived in Paris, it was just I, every single day I went to the movies. When I first moved to London, it was the same thing. And now I, I pick up trash on the side of the road. So this is your, your home in England. I saw that the community, may, they named a garbage truck mm-hmm. after you. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain what that is? Well, they named a garbage truck after me. Uh, <laughs> and then I got invited to Buckingham Palace just based on all the trash I've picked up. Wait, really? What, what did... It didn't have anything to do with my writing. <laughs> the queen has a lieutenant in every county. And her lieutenant in West Sussex looked out her window one day, and I was picking up trash on her road. And then she saw me again and again, and she nominated me. And so to go to the Queen's, you know, day of service garden party. So, uh, yeah. Did you get to meet her? No. I stood about, I don't know, eight feet away from her. But it didn't mean anything. You know, I just feel sorry for people like her who just have to meet people all day. That's got to be awful. And I don't want to impose... You know what I mean? Mine would just be one more quivering, kneeling person. Actually, I wouldn't quiver if I knelt before her because I don't care about her that much. I mean, you know what I mean? Like if I met your mom, I would probably care more. You know, I would say, oh, let that, let that, that's Rich's mom. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're, you're sitting down to write a story drawing from your life, how much would dramatization, whether for a comedic or poignant effect, play into it? Like, what are you trying to accomplish with each story? Gosh, I mean, I guess I'm trying to tell the story, and I'm trying to tell you what was funny about it, or what was uh, illuminating. You know, it's so easy to lose the story, to go off on little tangents, and then people forget what we were talking about. You know, that's a real danger for me. Mm-hmm. So I have to kind of keep that in check. I mean, if I'm writing about it, obviously there was something special about... I mean, I'm, I went once to buy an owl for my boyfriend, Hugh. I was going to buy him a taxidermy owl. And I went to this place in London. And the shop owner just started pulling things out to show me. And he had a human arm. <laughs> and he had a woman's head in a, in a plastic bag. And Wait, is it like a skull? or No, it still had hair and <laughs> it had some flesh on it. I mean, it was old, but it was a, a woman's head. And he had a pygmy skeleton that he showed me. But it's like he saw into my soul and he said, oh, I know what this person would like. And it was just sort of one of those moments when your just life feels like a story. And I had to work with that to try to get the reader or the listener to – I wanted it to seem remarkable to them the same way it felt remarkable to me. Right? So do you have to add some flair to it along the way? I mean, what, what I do – my job is like making something out of nothing. And sometimes it's too much of nothing and you, there's nothing that can be done about it. But sometimes you can stitch – one little nothing thing to another little nothing thing and kind of form a necklace of moments that can 
work is a story. Did you ever write something that someone in the story read and was very upset about? Yeah. I wrote about when I first moved to Paris, I went to French school, and I wrote about my teacher. She didn't speak English. It didn't occur to me that she would ever know anything about it. And somebody who worked at the American branch of the school that I'd gone to uh, informed the school in Paris, and the teacher was uh, upset. And that was I learned a big lesson from that. Um, because the facts in the story were all correct, but what I had left out was that even though the teacher was could be monstrous, we adored her. Um, and it was harder to explain why would you adore somebody who's monstrous. And so I felt like I was being lazy in cutting that out. And so that's the thing. If you're going to hurt somebody, don't hurt them because you were lazy. I mean, if, if you're going to hurt, give it your all, you know, <laughs> and hurt them. <laughs> but don't do it out of your laziness. How did you decide that you were going to write about losing your sister Tiffany to suicide? Well, she committed suicide. <laughs> I thought, I thought, uh, well, I'll just write about that. But I mean, I, I write about. I mean, it was a big moment for my family, you know. So I wouldn't have not written about it. And actually, I got to say, I I don't know that I've I've ever written anything that has resonated with people like that. Or at least people who have had a family member commit suicide. I heard from so many people after that story was in The New Yorker. And I imagine I'll hear from a lot of people when the book comes out too. But I like hearing from those people. I really do. I, I, I think we all have something in common. And it's like we're all members of a terrible club. You know? So when you you write something like that, is there sometimes a cathartic experience? No, I've never thought of writing as cathartic. But but so but sometimes when you write about something, some you can reach something, you can get to the point of something that you didn't know, you wouldn't be able to articulate if you were sitting around a table, just talking about it. But then you you're sitting at your desk and you're like, wow, that's it right there, that is it. But that said, I don't still don't find it cathartic. So is finding that insight is that what drives you? Uh, I'm driven. I, I'm just compelled to write. Every day I sit down and I, if you, if I can't do it, I would, boy, we, we, we would have a real problem. Like if you told me that I couldn't write tomorrow, I don't know what I would do. And, and success doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, like if I'd never published a book, I would still write just as much as I write now. I don't know if I would be better. It's just who you are. It's just something you have to do. Yeah. Your younger sister, Amy, she's an actress. She's a very funny person. Is that just a coincidence or was there something about the way that you guys grew up? Well, I don't, Amy and I aren't, aren't special in my family. You know, I mean, everyone in my family is funny. And I don't know. I, I always thought that came from being in a big family. And we're all, but we're all different. You know, like my brother can mock anybody. He can be really good at imitating people, and he's really good. He can meet you 
and within a matter of minutes, he could spot your weak point. My sister Lisa is funny in a way that just telling stories about horrible things that people say and do to her, but just not in a complainy way, but with a sense of wonder. She's very, really good at what she does. Um, my sister Gretchen is funny in a way that just she tells a story and you're just shocked. You do not expect that those words to come out of a lady's with gray hair's mouth. <laughs> you just don't expect that. You know, like Amy wouldn't tell you a story of something that happened yesterday. She's just right there in the moment. You should just be in this room and she'd have you doubled over. But I look around this room and I don't really see anything that's necessarily <laughs> funny in this room, but she, she would. She would, yeah. So you're saying your whole family is funny, but when the two of you decided to make careers out of that, did you ever have a point where you felt a rivalry with her? No, what we do is so different, you know. I'm not an actor. I don't aspire to be an actor. I could never do improv. Never tried it. Never wanted to try it. So the things that we do are really different. But I always thought it was interesting how sometimes people will try to drive us apart, you know, like at a book signing and somebody will say, uh, well, I think you know, your sister's a lot funnier than you are. And it's People like, will say that to you. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I don't know what they're thinking, but I'm like, I'm Amy's biggest fan. So some guy came the other day, well, I'm really team Amy. And it's like, well, we're on the same team against you. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and to that point saying that you would never want to be an actor and that even when you're on stage reading, you don't really want to see the audience what I think is funny is that, like, in your book, it seems like you have no shame. You even give graphic details of a gastrointestinal virus that you have. How do you balance that with maybe not wanting to see how a crowd is reacting to you? Well, with the gastrointestinal virus, <laughs> I didn't actually shit in my pants. <clears throat> see, that would have been different if I had. I don't know that I would have written about it if I had shit in my pants. Fair. But I almost shit in my pants. So that's the okay, difference okay. right there. Um, and so I, I think I give the illusion of talking about everything, but I don't actually talk about anything. Like people will often say, I can't believe, you know, the things that you said in your book about your your father. And it's like, well, what did I say? And then they can't really think of anything. I, I Late in her life, I became friends with Phyllis Diller. And she had a lot of... And Phyllis Diller is... Phyllis Diller was like the first female comedian. I mean, she was on television constantly when I was growing up. She was a stand-up comedian, and she did it all herself. But she had a long cigarette holder, right, and a cigarette. And then people would come up to her and say, uh, I was in the front row, of, you know, I saw you in Vegas and I was in the front row and you got cigarette ash all over me. And she's like, no, that was a wooden cigarette. She never smoked in her life. And she just used it as like the same way a traffic cop would stop the audience. So she just used it as a, as a tool for timing and for controlling the audience. So she just gave the illusion of... of uh, you know, smoking on stage when actually 
It was about something else completely. So are you are you clearing your stories with the people involved in them? Uh, yeah, I mean, because when you write for The New Yorker, the fact checker is going to call. The fact checker is not going to give you the story. The fact checker is going to say, do you have a Donovan album? Did you have a blue station wagon? Did you once have sea turtles in a bucket in the back of that station wagon? And you're going to freak out. You're going to think, what on earth did he write? And you're going to think the story's all about you, but it could just be a minor detail in that story. I think sometimes people are thinking about, oh, what if somebody wrote about me? Right? There's this one fellow who wrote an entire book about me, and he interviewed me for the book, and I like him a lot. But I told him from the very start, I will never read your book. If you were to write an article about me, never will I read that article. Why? It's none of my business. Well, why, why don't you want to read about yourself? I don't care what you have to say about me. Well, I do. Maybe I care so much that I don't want to know. But uh, I just made my life would be easier not knowing. I mean... You know, even if it's a newspaper interview that you give, right? I don't even want to read that. If it's a newspaper interview, because, you know, there's some mistake in there. You know, you're calling Hugh my husband instead of my boyfriend or something like that. I just don't even want to know about it. I just, I have a life to lead, you know. I have, it's just easier without that in it. How do you personally define success? Well, I remember my sister Lisa in high school, she took a test that would tell you what you're interested in. And I remember thinking, gosh, how can you not know what you're interested in? And knowing what you're interested in, I think, is half of it. And then if you can do what it is that you're interested in, I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah, and just keep yourself open to opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it too, is just saying yes to things and not sh- shutting yourself down. But I don't know. I mean, when it comes to, I don't consider myself more successful than a writer who hasn't published a b- book and sold ten, twelve million of them. We was really lucky. I. And that's all a part of it, and you can't fake that luck, and you can't manufacture it. And I would imagine it would be like that for any profession. And so I'm so fortunate to, you know, I sort of made a career out of being myself, which is pretty hard for that child to think that he could ever be himself. You know, I would think, well, people would reject me. People would never stop throwing up if they knew who I really was, you know. But the the fact is that the closer that I, the truer I remain to who I really am, the more people seem to go for it. (laughs) And I don't know, I got to believe that would work for anybody if it would work for me, you know. Well, thank you so much, David. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a rating and review. 
It really helps new people find the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success. Success.